0: They're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say, Cold War, we say, Cold Pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say, Cold War, we say, Cold Pink. Go pink, for freedom, go pink, for peace.
1: That was Emma's Revolution. And I'm Marcy Winograd, coordinator of Code Pink Congress, a campaign to mobilize congressional and White House support for progressive foreign policy. Thank you for tuning in to Code Pink Radio, broadcast on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, Texas, also on other radio stations, as well as Spotify and iTunes. Code Pink is a women's-led anti-war organization working to demilitarize domestic and foreign policy. Please join Code Pink Congress the first and third Tuesdays of the month when we host policy experts and members of Congress. Today on Code Pink Radio, Ukraine. We explore the prospects for peace. What is it going to take in terms of compromise to reach a negotiated settlement? Next, we'll hear from Palestinian rights activists protesting bans on free speech and academic freedom. First, voices from Code Pink Congress, a recent one that we held and co-hosted with Massachusetts Peace Action. Our first guest, Phyllis Bennis of the Institute for Policy Studies, then Joseph Gerson, president of the Campaign for Peace, Disarmament, and Common Security. With 10 million Ukrainians displaced, either in their own country or elsewhere in Europe, with reports of Russia's mass murder of civilians and the chair of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff predicting a long, protracted war, Copink calls for negotiations, not more weapons, that will only escalate the fighting and push us to the brink of nuclear war or global proxy wars, the pressing, the salient question is, how can we bring peace to Ukraine now? To shed light on the prospects for peace, we turn to Phyllis Bennis, who directs the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies.
2: We know that sanctions don't work to end wars. The the leader of the Norwegian Refugee Council, Jan, Jan Egeland, who was a longtime high-ranking official at the United Nations, recently said, that it will not be sanctions, but only diplomacy that will end this war. And he was absolutely right. The sanctions d- that directly target Putin or directly target the oligarchs, perhaps the military leaders, when they can be imposed without a war, can, maybe will do some good. But the broad economic sanctions that are crippling the economy of Russia are hurting ordinary people and doing nothing, doing nothing because those oligarchs and Putin have protected their wealth. They're not being impacted significantly yet. And as we see, it has done nothing to end this war. We have a desperate need for negotiation. So to look towards the future, what is this going to look towards? We need to push for diplomacy and we need to look for what our movements are going to have to do in the next period. We know that there has been a horrific rise in hypocrisy and double standards in how this war has been presented to us, not because It's not a good thing to see every major newspaper, every uh, news coverage on television, on cable, on the radio are all starting with the crisis in Ukraine. That's a good thing. That's how every war should be covered. Every day we should be seeing in all of our newspapers, on the front page, above the fold, the focus on the human cost of war. Right now, that means Ukraine. That also needs to mean when there is a war in Gaza, when Israel creates a new crisis in Gaza with its bombing, we need to see the victims there, the Palestinian victims on the front page. We needed to see 20 years of Afghan victims and 19 years of, of Iraqi victims on the front pages of our war. So we need to use this as an opportunity to say, this is how wars should be covered. This is how occupations should be covered. The occupation of Ukraine, the occupation of Western Sahara, the occupation of Kashmir, of Palestine, every occupation should be covered like this. Every war should be covered like this. Every refugee should be greeted at their border with hot soup and warm clothes and toys for the children. As most of the Ukrainians, not including the African students who were with them, the Indian doctors and others, but most of the Ukrainian Refugees desperately seeking safety were welcomed as refugees should be welcomed. And we need to use this to hold up as a model and say, this is how all refugees at our borders, where Central Americans are kept out, and at every border around the world, this is how all refugees, not only Ukrainian and other Europeans, but all refugees should be treated. We have that opportunity and that obligation. So what do we do now? How do we work to stop this war, to build the diplomacy? First, we call on the US to stop undermining the diplomacy, to make clear that sanctions will be lifted when the war ends, all sanctions. Because if you don't say that, there's no incentive to Russia. If they think the sanctions are going to continue, as they told Saddam Hussein sanctions would continue in Iraq, doesn't matter what you do now, you can give us your weapons of mass destruction, which of course they didn't have, or not, we are going to maintain sanctions. We need to make sure the US says they will lift the sanctions with the end of war. They need to support the diplomacy that is underway between Russia and Ukraine and not say, well, we haven't decided yet if we will accept what Ukraine decides to accept. This is diplomacy for Ukraine to lead and the US must follow. We need to support an international investigation of all the war crimes allegations and that means the United States needs to stop attacking the International Criminal Court and support its jurisdiction over those investigations. The IMF and the World Bank should be considering forgiveness of Ukraine's debt in the context of this war. The U.S. needs to provide far more support than it's willing to so far of Ukrainian refugees. So the clock has to start first on the human beings, an immediate ceasefire, an immediate end to the bombing and the diplomacy. Has to take center stage, not the war. Thank you. Thank you, Phyllis.
1: Here, here. Debt forgiveness, support negotiations, be clear about the terms, provide an off-ramp for lifting those sanctions for a ceasefire and withdrawal of troops. With this, I'd like to go to Brian Garvey of Massachusetts Peace Action, who will introduce our next guest.
3: Thanks, Marcy. Uh, it's my privilege to introduce Joseph Gerson, the president of Campaign for Peace, Disarmament, and Common Security. He's also the vice president of the International Peace Bureau and a board member here at Massachusetts Peace Action. He long served the American Friends Service Committee as director of the Peace and Economic Security Program, and he's also the author of the book, Empire and the Bomb, How the U.S. Uses Nuclear Weapons to Dominate the World. Uh, you have the floor, Joseph.
4: Thank you, Brian. And first I just want to appreciate uh, people here with code pink, uh, mass peace action, and people here in the in the uh, webinar itself who have just this deep commitment to peace, to justice and stubborn, uh, a stubborn will to end this war and others. Uh, I guess what I want to start with is um, pressing on the absolute urgency of the negotiations, the ceasefire uh, and pressing for uh, troops out. Um, and I want to stress that, um, you know, in the beginning of the of the war, uh, there were analogies being made to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, Sam Nunn, among others, uh, published an article urging uh, neither the United States nor um, nor NATO or Russia uh, to pull too hard on the Gordian knot of this war, uh, lest it lead uh, to escalation to to nuclear war. Uh, and I'm afraid that we're uh, in a situation at least as dangerous now as we were uh, in, 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 at that time. Um, you know, obviously, the uh, Russian pullback from uh, the Kiev region uh, is a reflection of its, of its strategic blunder. Uh, and, but there's a deep, deep commitment there uh, not, to, um, not, not to lose this war. And I'll come back to that in a second. In terms of the Biden administration's um, ambitions, uh, Elliot Cohen put it well when he said the Western objective must be to leave Russia profoundly weakened and militarily crippled, uh, incapable of renewing such an onslaught, isolated and internally divided until the point that an aging autocrat falls from power. Uh, We heard this from from Biden, Uh, it was walked back, but uh, one has to doubt the degree of that. Uh, Early, Marcy was making reference to uh, General Milley's statement earlier today. Uh, This is what he said. He said, I do, I do think that this is a very protracted conflict, and I think it's at least measured in years. I don't know about decades, but at least years for sure. He went on to say that um, uh, I think NATO and the United States, Ukraine, and all of the allies and partners are supporting Ukraine are going to be involved in this for quite some time. Uh, that has to raise some questions about the degree to which the United States uh, is committed to uh, negotiations. Uh, so uh, earlier, earlier today, uh, a friend of mine uh, sent me uh, the link to Sergei Kar- uh, Karaganov's uh, article in the New State, actually interview, in the New Statesman. Uh, he's a former very senior advisor uh, to uh, the Putin government uh, and and very much a hardliner. Uh, he was stressing that Russia cannot afford to lose. Uh, the expectation has to be uh, of intensified fighting uh, for control of the Donbass and to create a land bridge uh, to to Crimea. And obviously, the the fighting has been intense there, but it's only going to get a whole lot sharper. He also went to say that uh, if Russia finds itself with its back to its wall, uh, if either militarily or politically uh, for for Putin, uh, he said, quote, there are dozens of places in the world where Russia could have direct confrontation with the United States, which is to say beyond Ukraine. So, in that circumstance, I think we have to be uh, nervous or concerned about the possibility, n- not necessarily of nuclear weapons, though it could be, uh, but also, as you read into his article, the possibility, say, that they would uh, bomb the supply lines of the weapons coming in from, from uh, Poland, uh, which would risk, obviously, a, a NATO uh, Russia Russia war. Um, uh, you know, just Phyllis went into talking about NATO uh, quite well. I don't want to turn the clock back there too far, uh, but just to remember uh, that the, the um, uh, first Secretary General of, uh, of NATO uh, said the purpose of NATO was to keep Russia out, Germany down, and the U.S. in. Uh, and, you know, thinking in terms of Brzezinski's uh, view of how to maintain the U.S. empire, he said we have to maintain, uh, you know, with the with, uh, Eurasia as the geostrategic center of, of, of world power and influence, we have to have toeholds hold, toe uh, on both this Western, uh, Southern, and, and also Eastern frontiers. Uh, so NATO has served that function. Uh, people should be aware that in, in memory, memory is, is lost over 30 years, uh, that in the early nineties, after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was enormous hopes of collaboration between the West and, and, and Russia. Uh, Uh, there was a giddiness uh, in the the, uh, first Bush administration in terms of what would be possible. And in the 1990s, uh, first with the Paris Charter, uh, then with the uh, NATO-Russia founding act, uh, and then with an OSCE uh, document in 1999, uh, commitments were made that no nation would uh, seek to enhance its security at the expense of another, a common security approach. But that was violated uh, beginning with the Clinton administration, uh, the um, uh, expansion of NATO to Russia's borders. I- I've been privileged in the last couple of months to be part of a Track Two process, uh, and what you what I hear from figures in the Russian elite uh, is, you know, their their belief uh, that that they were strategically or militarily vulnerable, their security was in, was was jeopardized, uh, that their power was probably uh, as strong as it was going to be, become. Uh, and to uh, strike uh, while they perceive the iron to be hot. in terms of negotiations, uh, you know it's it's, it, it's interesting. Um, we did a webinar uh, just uh, what, last week with Anatole Levin of the Quincy Institute. Uh, and he was saying that you know, the negotiations are basically ninety percent complete uh, except for the Donbass. Um, but, the Donbass is the um, is the critical piece here. Um, he was pointing to one possible solution, uh, which was that we move to a ceasefire, uh, but that um, uh, while while it's clear that that uh, Ukraine will never get um, Crimea back, uh, that the situation in the Donbass uh, be dealt with much as uh, Cyprus has been dealt with. Uh, no real resolution in uh, any time soon. An agreement not to not to be fighting. Uh, but to continue, if you will, endless negotiations, uh, which sure beats the hell out of the endless, endless war. Uh, There is largely agreement, as you know, in terms of Ukrainian neutrality. Um, uh, uh, One of the questions, among the questions, is what neutrality would consist of. Uh, Would uh, Ukraine be able to join the European Union? Um, uh, It would need to be able to defend its neutrality. Uh, Where would it get its weapons, training, Uh, maybe from Sweden? Uh, and, um, uh, and the question of denazification uh, seems to have been left by the, by the wayside. Um, yeah, the, the, the other question here, of course, is the guarantees. Uh, and the question here is whether the United States will be willing to extend guarantees, whether the United States is actually willing to support negotiations, or if, as Millie was saying earlier, uh, the, the ambition here is to, is to bleed uh, Russia. Um, I want to say a few things uh, uh, about what I've been hearing from from Russians that I've been engaged with, um, some in in, in in their peace movement and others in, in the elite. Um, a, a dear friend of mine, who we we toured about just before the pandemic, Oleg Bodrov, uh, you know, on the on the day after the invasion, uh, was uh, sending the text of a petition uh, calling fo- opposing the war. Uh, and urging uh, those responsible for the war uh, to be held accountable as war criminals. Uh, He indicated in that first note that 300,000 Russians had signed it in the first 12 hours and eventually got more than than a million. Uh, He's been really quite clear that the sanctions are counterproductive, uh, that uh, they only go to reaffirm uh, the uh, Putin inspired belief that um, uh, Russia is surrounded by enemies uh, that the sanctions are one well more manifestation of that uh, and, and are thus uh, counter, counterproductive. Uh, and uh, yesterday, he, he sent out a, uh, an appeal being signed by a number of countries in the Baltic region uh, urging an OSCE summit for 2025 that would provide the foundation for uh, negotiating a new Euro-Atlantic order. I think we have to maintain the vision of what's possible in the long term. Uh, from, the, from the Russian elite side, uh, the insistence that there never again be a military threat from Ukraine, for, for decades at least, uh, that neutrality has to be rooted in Ukraine's political system. That's uh, quite interesting to say the least, uh, but the fear is that, um, say, like Sweden or Finland, uh, they could move out of it uh, fairly fairly quickly if, if they wanted to. Uh, and a recognition, a demand uh, that neutrality will require progress in U.S.-Russian relations. With the degree of uh, hatred that's been developed on all sides now, it's not going to be so easy. But that's that's we have to maintain uh, the vision of a possible uh, peace uh, of the reality that the Russian people are, are not our enemy, uh, and that uh, the, the peace is possible. I say a few words about the nuclear dimensions. I'm recognizing that time is time is tight here. Um, in terms of the no fly zone, I think probably everybody here on the call knows by now. Uh, that a no-fly zone means World War III and probably the end of humanity. Uh, In order to enforce a no-fly zone, uh, one nation needs to wipe out the uh, uh, anti-aircraft positions of the other. That means in this case, killing Russians on the ground. It also means shooting down the other side's planes, uh, which again means a a NATO or uh, US-Russia war uh, with its escalation. Uh, I think we need to appreciate that um, Uh, What what Putin has done with his somewhat minimal nuclear threat, although you could read today that their um, UN representative has said they would never use nuclear weapons in this war, uh, reflects what what the United States has done countless times uh, since after the Nagasaki uh, A-bombing. In in some cases it works, in other cases it doesn't. Uh, In this case, it did prevent uh, the uh, NATO and the United States from imposing a no-fly zone. as, as Brian was saying in terms of, of my earlier work, which in turn builds on work from uh, Dan Ellsberg, uh, on at least 30 occasions during international crises and, um, and wars, the United States has prepared and threatened to initiate nuclear war. Uh, most recently in the run-ups to the two Iraq wars uh, and, and Trump's uh, uh, fire and fury uh, with, with Korea. Uh, what do I wanna say here uh, with... with um, yeah, we, we also, in terms of, 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 of nuclear weapons, uh, as you will have seen uh, today, uh, the polls are saying, well, they'd be happy to have U.S. nuclear weapons uh, based in Poland. Uh, but at a deeper level, you know, we're, we're focused very much on what's happening in and around Ukraine. But we have to understand that in many ways, this war is having massive global impacts. Uh, on the one hand, in terms of um, uh, the, the inability to be uh, uh, exporting uh, Ukrainian and Russian wheat, uh, which means hunger and famine uh, through much of the, um, the Global South. Um, but it also means uh, uh, the countries are going to be looking at the possibility of, of, uh, of either asking for U.S. nuclear weapons to be based in their country uh, or to build their own. You know, there's the rest agreement in 1994 uh, in which uh, Ukraine agreed to uh, surrender the nuclear weapons it inherited from, uh, from, from the Soviet Union. Uh, in exchange for uh, guarantees of, of the country's territorial integrity. Uh, well, that was violated, uh, and uh, certainly countries like Iran have to be wondering what this means for them. Uh, and in Japan, we now have the most recently, most recent former prime minister uh, saying Japan should welcome uh, U.S. nuclear weapons to Japan, uh, and you have pressures both in Japan and South Korea uh, to develop their own nuclear weapons. I think we uh, need to uh, be pressing beyond ending the war to be thinking in terms of the need to renew strategic stability talks uh, with, uh, with Russia. Uh, we need to be talking about the new, uh, new European security order uh, through the OSCE. We can talk more about the OSCE. Uh, the, START, the new START treaty expires in four years. In the midst of all of this, even between enemies, you negotiate arms control agreements. It's urgently needed. Uh, and the same with intermediate nuclear forces and conventional forces in Europe uh, agreements. Uh, before the war, uh, there was agreement on this kind of agenda uh, by senior figures in the United States, Europe, and Russia, and we need to hold that out, as well as our immediate demand and actions this Saturday and beyond, uh, demanding a ceasefire and negotiate it into the war. Thank you.
1: You are listening to Code Pink Radio with guests Joseph Gerson, Vice President of the International Peace Bureau, and Phyllis Bennis of the Institute for Policy Studies. Back with the question and answer session right after this.
5: Come, you masters over. You that build all the guns. You that build the death plates You that build all the guns. You that hide behind walls. You that hide behind desks. I just want you to know I can't see through your mask. They've never done nothing but to build and destroy. You play with my word as your little toy. You put a drug in my head, then you hide from my eyes. Then you turn Like your soul You lie in D.C. The world war can be won You own me to believe But I see through your eyes And I see through your brain Like I see through the water That runs down my drain You that fasten all the triggers For the others to fire Then you sit back and watch While the death count gets higher You hide in your mansion while young people's blood Flows out of their bodies And is buried in the mud You've thrown the worst fear That could ever be heard The fear of bring children Into this world Threatening my baby I'm born in a name You ain't worth the blood That runs in your veins How much do I know talk out a turn you might say that i'm yours Question. Is your money that good? Will it buy you forgiveness? Do you think that it could? Oh, I think you will find when your death takes its toll, all the money you buy back your soul and I hope that you die and your death will come soon I'll follow your casket in the pale afternoon and I'll watch as eyes Lord. So that you're
3: dead. Uh, Medea, I know that you have a question uh, uh, on deck that you'd like to ask, so I'll pass it to you. Uh,
6: yes, it uh, flows right from what you were saying, Brian, which is uh, the pressure that the uh, people in the administration and uh, are, are getting. Uh, Despite pushback from the Pentagon, which understands the gravity of all of this, And uh, so much of that pressure is coming, not just from hawks in Congress, but from the media. And there's a question from Howard Sharman of how do we deal with this media when even uh, the supposed liberal ones like MSNBC are full of retired general and it just eggs on the war. And I wanna add to that question by asking both of you, where do you go for your sources of news? What do you recommend that people look at uh, to get a more complete picture of what's happening? So Phyllis,
2: let's start with you. Sure, well, the question of the media is huge. I mean, we've seen real cheerleading for the escalation of this war. We saw cheerleading for a no-fly zone from people who don't really even know what a no-fly zone is. It's you know, it's very attractive. It's, it sounds like something out of Star Wars. It's this magic shield. You declare a no-fly zone and suddenly there's no bombers in the air and it doesn't work that way. It's an act of war. It's an act of war as we heard when the same debate was happening in 2011 around Libya. uh, And it was the diplomats in the United States State Department that were leading the charge for a no-fly zone. And the opposition, ironically, came from the military. And it was the Secretary of Defense who explained it. A no-fly zone in Libya starts with going to war against Libya. Because before you can start patrolling a no-fly zone, you have to take out all of the anti-aircraft batteries in the country, which means attacking them. In this case, it means U.S planes would have to attack Russian anti-aircraft batteries, Russian troops, etc. It's a major escalation. Each of these acts represents a major escalation. And we see the media cheerleading for it. So I think there's a few aspects to it. One is we have to pressure the media. You know, the the, the, the degree to which MSNBC wants to consider itself a, quote, liberal a uh, uh, news outlet, which I'm not sure they do, frankly. I think they want to believe themselves to be mainstream, whatever that means. They should be getting letters saying this is not okay. You know, it's one thing to cover discussions in the Congress about a no-fly zone. It's another thing to be cheerleading for it, and that's what you're doing. The other thing is we need to support our independent media, whether it's Democracy Now! and Pacifica Radio, whether it's all of the numerous online websites and and, uh, uh, magazines that publish alternative voices. And we have to be careful. We have to be careful about what we read in social media. We have to be really thoughtful in what we distribute, what we pass on. You know, there's a tendency with social media, I think for some of us, you read it and it's like, oh my God, really? I better send this out to all of my followers. Without really reading it carefully, taking a step back and thinking, wait a minute, Does this even make sense? Is this true? What are the sources for this? Because frankly, there's plenty of crummy media among the so-called independent media too. That's just based on not good sources, all those things. So I think one thing is have a a wide variety of sources that you go to. Go to the international media. Al Jazeera does really good coverage of pretty much everywhere in the world other than Qatar. if you're looking at Africa, their coverage is terrific. If you're looking at Ukraine, their coverage has been very good. So that's one kind of source. Some of the other mainstream international sources have been better than ours. BBC has been better than CNN, for instance. So you know, there's a question of just get a wide range of sources. Listen and read all of the, uh, uh, the alternative media that you can and support it. It doesn't mean that everything that in the independent or, or uh, alternative media says is right, because it's not. They differ. Some of them are relying on sources that I don't think are very useful either. So it's a matter of taking in a lot of information, make your own judgments about what makes sense, what doesn't sound right. And if it doesn't sound right, if your gut tells you there's something off about this analysis, but it comes from the alternative media, so I'm just going to you know send it out, don't do that don't do that. It doesn't help. So that's the, you know, the media side of it. It means writing letters to the editor. It means calling the radio talk shows, having a voice on both mainstream and alternative media. There's no one answer to this. There's no one source that I go to that tells me everything I need to know. I read a bunch of stuff. I listen to a bunch of stuff. I listen to things and read things. I read the New York Times, not because it's going to tell me what to think about things, but because it's more likely to have access to what's happening, and I'll make my own judgments about what I think about it, than other places that don't have uh, bureaus all around the world. News, you know, news offices have been shut down all around the world. So there's only a few that have people on the ground. It cost a fortune to send reporters into a war zone. And they're not gonna be there forever. They've been there at this level for a month and a half now. They're not gonna be there forever. It costs them too much. So one of the things is being careful about that. Another thing is recognizing that all of our great alternative media sources don't necessarily have the capacity to be able to come up with their own ability to send journalists around the world. So we have to make those balances and it's a really hard task.
3: Um, uh, One person is asking uh, whether President Zelensky supports Ukraine's uh, uh, neutrality, what level of support there is in Ukraine for that. Uh, and someone else asks uh, what the guarantees are uh, mm-hmm. for Ukraine's
4: continued uh, uh, neutrality. So, sure. so you know, those are those are all the questions that are really the subject of, of debate at, at, within Ukraine, and I expect in the negotiating process. Uh, clearly, uh, Ukraine's neutrality has to exclude uh, any possibility of joining NATO. Uh, then you come to the question of guarantees, right? Uh, so, so Zelensky has been saying he wants guarantees from the United States, from NATO, from other countries, and then the Russians say, "Well, how does that differ from joining NATO?" So that's a hard piece that has to be negotiated. Uh, elements that relate to that as well have to deal with, um, have to do with what level of armaments uh, Ukraine would have to um, uh, protect its its, its neutrality uh, in in the future. Um, so there's the other question, which I made reference to uh, earlier, is the question of whether uh, Ukraine would be able to join the European Union, uh, even uh, 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 this, despite its, its, its neutrality. And then we have to come back to the, the, the bigger question here, I think, is um, uh, does, does, does territorial integrity for a neutral state include the Donbass or not? Uh, and, and that's where the big fight is right now. And I think we have to be urging uh, that that uh, you know, both sides uh, work to, if you will, put that question on the shelf, uh, stop the killing. And as Phyllis was saying before, uh, we do need to have um, uh, something sweet besides just sticks, uh, which means the, the, the commitment to be uh, reducing and then ending uh, this, the sanctions, which as I said before are absolutely counterproductive.
2: I would just add to that, I think on the question of the the, um, uh, the neutrality issue, we have to be clear that Zelensky is president of a country at war, and his primary job, his first job, is to keep his people mobilized and safe. And the question of you know whether he supports neutrality, I'm sure not. He's made clear he wants to join NATO. It's also in the Ukrainian constitution. It's not going to be easy to give that up. But this is what may be necessary to stop this war. You know, this, is, this is the reality of negotiations. Neither side is gonna get everything they want. Neither side's gonna win, right? So the question is, how do we minimize the killing? I think that's really, we have to understand what the stakes are here.
1: Phyllis Bennis of the Institute for Policy Studies and Joseph Gerson of the Campaign for Peace, Disarmament, and Common Security. I'm Marcy Winograd for Code Pink Radio. Now, I'd like to share a tweet from Code Pink supporter Tad Daly. Tad wrote, I remember how Gorbachev ended the Cold War, on oh caps now, virtually without bloodshed by espousing a vision of mutual security. So what would be so awful, writes Tad, about giving Russia assured access to the Black Sea by providing a land bridge to Crimea? A tweet from me. How did Kennedy resolve the Cuban Missile Crisis? The Soviets withdrew their missiles from Cuba in return for U.S. promises not to invade Cuba. And now this part was kept secret for decades. To remove missiles from Turkey. What if NATO offered to remove missiles from Poland? Hmm. Finally, from Counterpunch, quote, if more weapons were the answer, the conflict would have been resolved years ago. According to the BBC, the U.S. has already allocated almost $3 billion to Ukraine over the last eight years, long before the current war. Next, we turn to Israel-Palestine. Code Pink denounces violence, be it perpetrated against the people of Israel or the millions of Palestinians living under Israeli occupation. Too often, those who criticize the Israeli occupation of Palestine are attacked as anti-Semitic, even though their criticism is not of Jews. Like myself, but of a political system that privileges one ethnicity or religion over another. Today on Code Pink Radio, we hear from the champions for Palestinian human rights and academic freedom Amal Fabete of Palestine Legal and Cynthia Franklin of Jewish Voice for Peace and Against Canary Mission. Code Pink's national co director, Ariel Gold, introduces the first guest. Uh,
6: Our next speaker, Amal Fabek. I, I'm thrilled to introduce to you. Amal is the Michael Ratner Justice Fellow at Palestine Legal, where she challenges the cens- censorship and surveillance of advocates for Palestinian liberation. I know that myself personally and Code Pink as an organization have used Palestine Legal numerous times, and we're thrilled to have you with us, Amal.
7: Thank you so much, Ariel, and thank you to Code Pink, uh, Mappa, and and my co-panelists. I'm really excited to be a part of this conversation tonight. Um, thank you, Diala, for starting us off and providing that really great context. Um, just a quick sort of intro into Palestine Legal. We're a legal advocacy organization. Our mission is to protect the rights of people in the U.S. who speak out for Palestinian freedom and challenge efforts to threaten harass and legally bully activists into silence and inaction um, palestine legal has documented widespread censorship and harassment of palestine activists over the years featuring a range of tactics which i hope to touch upon tonight um, among which false accusi- accusations of anti-semitism feature prominently um, like Diala mentioned you know people in the us who speak out for Palestinian rights are routinely censored punished and falsely accused of anti-semitism or support for terrorism based solely on their support for palestinian rights and their criticism of israel and in addition to this abuse of mere material support laws as a line of attack against palestine activists we're also seeing a huge wave of legislative attacks last year state and federal lawmakers introduced at least 31 legislative measures aimed at silencing condemning or punishing advocacy for Palestinian rights. Um, these measures primarily included two types of bills. The first uh, targeting boycott divestment and sanctions or BDS. And the second being bills that adopt a distorted definition of anti-Semitism in an effort to shield Israel from criticism. So first to start with, Uh, Bills targeting BDS, an increasing number of people around the world are heeding the 2005 call by Palestinian civil society to use BDS as tactics to pressure Israel to respect Palestinian rights and to comply with international law. And in response to this growing support for boycott campaigns, Israel and its supporters have worked to suppress such collective action to hold Israel accountable. We've seen this suppression play out in so many different ways including a large focus being on for example getting students expelled or workers fired from their jobs Um, last year 58 percent of the incidents that palestine legal responded to um, targeted students and scholars at campuses across the country most of these efforts failed but still caused harm to those impacted and have a chilling impact on speech and support of palestinians alongside this private repression, lawmakers have also advanced legislation that stifles First Amendment-protected boycotts for Palestinian rights in order to shield Israel from criticism. And again, this is often at the urging of the Israeli government and Israeli advocacy groups. In the past eight years, 33 states have enacted such anti-boycott laws, despite strong opposition from civil liberties groups that argue political boycotts are constitutionally protected. And in fact, none of these laws have been upheld on their merits when challenged. Um, Most recently, for example, anti boycott legislation rose up in Virginia, Nebraska and Tennessee, with local, state and state activists mobilizing to protect the right to speak out in support of Palestinian freedom. Um, Just last week, Palestine Legal sent a letter to Virginia lawmakers urging them to oppose a new anti boycott uh, bill that targets advocacy for Palestinian rights. These bills, if enacted, chill free speech rights by effectively dictating that a position supporting human rights is unacceptable. These bills intimidate individuals and businesses from adopting ethical political stances regarding Israel and Palestine, because these individuals know that their decisions based on human rights concerns could result in a denial of a contract with the state. And although these bills typically apply only to public contracts, if enacted, they will likely chill other expressive activity For example, similar laws have been invoked in order to chill student and community activism in support of Palestinian human rights, to prevent public talks at universities, to censor school teachers, and to cancel cultural events, for example. So even when these censorship efforts have failed, confusion over the scope or deliberate misapplication of these anti-boycott laws did in fact chill, punish, or attempt to punish speakers supporting Palestinian rights. And in fact, the impact of legislation targeting Israel boycotts goes far beyond chilling advocacy for Palestinian rights. Anti-Israel boycott laws have become a model for other types of anti-boycott legislation targeting protests in support of other social justice issues. A dozen of states have introduced or passed anti-boycott legislation, for example, um, targeting efforts to address climate change, gun violence, and even a global pandemic. However, despite the rapid spread of these laws, they've been met with widespread opposition, both from grassroots activists who support the movement for Palestinian freedom and equality and from civil rights groups and legislators who recognize these laws as a violation of the First Amendment. Um, Secondly, in addition to these anti boycott laws, anti semitism accusations have been a primary tool to discredit critics of Israel for decades. Um, And alongside these smear tactics, there have been significant efforts to turn these accusations into a legal weapon to force institutions and governments to censor and punish. Um, And that's where the codification of the IRA definition of of anti-Semitism comes into play or the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition. This controversial definition of anti-Semitism threatens Palestinian rights advocates and free speech. Um, by design, the, the definition's focus on branding all criticism of Israel's anti-Semitic makes it a tool to silence Palestinians and, and shield the Israeli government from accountability. And Now we're seeing this large legislative assault to codify this politicized redefinition and get it to be applied to censor Palestine speech. Um, just last month, 10 states have announced that they're adopting the IRA working definition of anti-Semitism. And this follows the large wave of anti-boycott laws that I mentioned earlier that we've seen in 30 plus states, which which is still ongoing. And again, this IRA definition is is really controversial because it's dangerous and and it fails to identify the true nature of anti-Semitism or or its root causes in white supremacy. Um, By conflating anti-Semitism with legitimate criticism of the state of Israel, we are effectively weakening the definition of the term. And, and shifting focus away from actual bigotry and hatred um, lawmakers, therefore, should reject, you know, attempts to codify the IRA definition or reject using it as a guiding factor in, in law or policy. Um, and that's why at Palestine legal we're standing up for the right to advocate um, for Palestinian human rights by mobilizing to defeat repressive bills challenging these unconstitutional laws in court and pushing for affirmative legislation that protects the right to dissent.
4: Uh, Next up, I'd like to introduce uh, Cynthia Franklin. Cynthia is a professor, author, and member of the organizing committee, sorry, the organizing collective of the US campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel. She's also an activist with Against Canary Mission and with Jewish Voice for Peace, Cynthia.
6: Thank you so much um, to Code Pink. And it's an honor to be on this panel with everyone who has spoken so far. I'm personally indebted to Palestine Legal on many occasions and also have huge respect for CCR and Defense for Children. So I was asked to speak today about the project Against Canary Mission, which was spearheaded by organizer Sumeya Awad as a way to counter Canary Mission, a website that blacklists students and faculty in the US. And I worked on this project as a member of US So first, I just want to say a few words about Canary Mission. Um, it was launched in 2015 under the cloak of anonymity. It carries thousands of photos and profiles of students and faculty who support Palestine. And on the basis of that support, it labels them as racists, as anti-Semites, as supporters of terrorism. Um, the website claims that every profiled individual has been carefully researched and asks visitors to report instances of anti-Semitism. There's a button to do that. Um, the dossiers include quotations taken out of context, and the site conflates any support for Palestine, support for violence and anti-Semitism. It also mixes in a few profiles of people who truly are white supremacists and anti-Semitism. Uh, and and anti-Semites, which I think is probably an effective tactic on their part. Um, Canary Mission has been shut down twice as a Twitter um, for its Twitter feed, but it keeps popping back up. The Twitter feed further foments hatred and harassment. Um, I experienced this firsthand when Canary Mission sent out um, a tweet based on my opposition to Israel's practices of stealing water in the West Bank. It was just one tweet and I I received just a stream of death threats that were misogynistic and also charging me with anti-Semitism. And that was not surprising because Zionism is regularly accompanied by sexism and homophobia, as well as Islamophobia and racism. And I can just only imagine how draining this is for those who are regularly featured in Canary Mission's Twitter feed. I just had this one. Within a year of its establishment, Canary Mission included over 1,800 profiles. It particularly targets students of color who are active with BDS, Students for Justice in Palestine, and Muslim Student Associations. So this uh, this profiling is materially as well as emotionally harmful. And Liz Jackson of Palestine Legal um, is quoted in a 2018 Intercept article where she notes, Quote: Targets of Canary Mission have been not been denied entry to Palestine, fired from jobs, interrogated by employers and university administrators, and targeted with death threats and racial, homophobic, misogynistic harassment from Canary Mission followers. We know one person who was denied a bank account. Um, this is just some of the important work Powell legal does in documenting and then defunding people who have experiences. Um, the site is used by law enforcement in Israel and the U.S. And of particular concern is how Israeli border officials have made use of the site to deny Palestinian Americans entry to their homeland. So this really creates a chilling effect. In addition to those who are denied um, denied entry, and that includes pal- especially Palestinians and also anyone on record in support of BDS. The site works in tandem with other Zionist entities, and there's a documentary that some of you might know, The Lobby, um, that reveals Israel uh, Israeli lobby um, financier and real estate mogul living in California now. Adam Milstein, as the funder behind the site, he also, his foundation funds a panoply of anti-Palestinian organizations, including the Israel On Campus Coalition and Stand With Us and the AMCHA initiative. In two- in 2018, under the leadership of then NSJP student Sumeya Awad, who's currently director of strategy at Adelaide Justice Project, a group of us from NSJP, USACV, JVP, PAL Legal, and IMEU worked on the project against Canary Mission. And I'll drop the link for that in a minute. Um, NSJP um, polled students who had been profiled on Canary Mission and uh, based on their responses the formation of this website emerged as one way to offer support to these students and here I want to really stress that in addition to the ways Israelis use the site to prohibit travel this site is really harmful to students who often when googled by potential employers or grad student admission committees might have little that appears beyond their their canary mission dossier So we designed the site not only to resist Canary Mission's tactics of harassment and intimidation, but also, and more importantly, to celebrate activists supporting Palestine liberation and to expose Zionist practices of settler colonialism, apartheid, and occupation.
1: Cynthia Franklin is a professor, author, and member of the organizing collective of the U.S. Campaign for the Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel. She is also an activist with Against Canary Mission and Jewish Voice for Peace. The website Against Canary Mission can be found at againstcanarymission.org. I want to thank our guest Cynthia Franklin, Amal Thabetta of Palestine Legal, Phyllis Bennis of the Institute for Policy Studies, and Joseph Gerson of the Campaign for Peace, Disarmament, and Common Security. I'm Marcy Winograd for Code Pink Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, Texas, and other radio stations throughout the country. Please join me and my co-host, Mindia Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink, on the first and third Tuesday of the month for Code Pink Congress. Until then, work for peace with justice. Thank you.
0: You think they're foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say, Cold War, we say, Cold Pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say, Cold War, we say, Cold Pink, Cold Pink. The freedom. tell us